Chapter Fifteen of Indiana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. Indiana by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Chapter Fifteen. Despite these never-ending dissensions, Madame Delmar clung with the confidence of her years to the hope of a happy future. It was her first happiness, and her ardent imagination, her rich young heart, were able to supply it with all that it lacked. She was ingenious in creating keen and pure joys for herself, in bestowing upon herself the complement of the precarious favors of her destiny raymond loved her in truth he did not lie when he told her that she was the only love of his life he had never loved so innocently nor so long with her he forgot everything but her the world and politics were blotted out by the thought of her he enjoyed the domestic life the being treated like one of the family as she treated him he admired her patience and her strength of will he wondered at the contrast between her mind and her character. He wondered especially that after importing so much solemnity into their first compact, she was so unexacting, satisfied with such furtive and infrequent joys, and that she trusted him so blindly and so absolutely. But love was a novel and generous passion in her heart, and a thousand noble and delicate sentiments were included in it, and gave it a force which Raymond could not understand. For his own part he was annoyed at first by the constant presence of her husband or the cousin. He had intended that this love should be like all his previous loves, but Indiana soon compelled him to rise to her level. The resignation with which she endured the constant surveillance, the happy air with which she glanced at him by stealth, her eyes which spoke to him in eloquent though silent language, her sublime smile when a sudden illusion in conversation brought their hearts nearer together. These soon became keen pleasures which Raymond craved and appreciated, thanks to the refinement of his mind and the culture of education. What a difference between that chaste creature, who seemed not to contemplate the possibility of a denouement to her love, and all those other women who were intent only upon hastening it while pretending to shun it, when Raymond happened to be alone with her, Indiana's cheeks did not turn a deeper red, nor did she avert her eyes in confusion. No, her tranquil, limpid eyes were always fixed upon him in ecstasy. An angelic smile played always about her lips, as ruddy as a little girl's who had known no kisses but her mother's. When he saw her so trustful, so passionate, so pure, living solely with the heart, and not realizing that her lover's heart was in torment when he was at her feet, Raymond dared not be a man, lest he should seem to her inferior to her dreams of him, and through self-love he became as virtuous as she. Madame Delmar, ignorant as a genuine Creole, had never dreamed hitherto of considering the momentous questions that were now discussed before her every day. She had been brought up by Sir Ralph, who had a poor opinion of the intelligence and reasoning power of womankind, and who had confined himself 
to imparting some positive information likely to be of immediate use. Thus she had a very shadowy idea of the world's history, and any serious discussion bored her to death. But when she heard Raymond apply to these dry subjects all the charm of his wit, all the posy of his language, she listened and tried to understand. Then she ventured timidly to ask ingenuous questions which a girl of ten brought up according to worldly ideas would readily have answered. Raymond took pleasure in enlightening that virgin mind which seemed destined to open to receive his principles. But despite the power he exerted over her untrained, artless mind, his sophism sometimes encountered resistance from her. Indiana, opposed to the interest of civilization, when raised to the dignity of principles of action, the straightforward ideas and simple laws of good sense and humanity. Her arguments were characterized by an unpolished freedom which sometimes embarrassed Raymond, and always charmed him by its childlike originality. He applied himself as to a task of serious importance to attempt to bring her around gradually to his principles, to his beliefs. He would have been proud to dominate her conscientious and naturally enlightened convictions, but he had some difficulty in attaining his end. Ralph's generous theories, his unbending hatred of the vices of society, his keen impatience for the reign of other laws and other morals, were sentiments to which Indiana's unhappy memories responded. But Raymond suddenly unhorsed his adversary by demonstrating that this aversion for the present was the work of selfishness. He described with much warmth his own attachments, his devotion to the royal family, which he had the art to clothe with all the heroism of a perilous loyalty, his respect for the persecuted faith of his fathers, his religious sentiments, which were not the fruit of reasoning, he said, but to which he clung by instinct and from necessity. In the joy of loving one's fellow creatures, of being bound to the present generation by all the ties of honor and philanthropy, the pleasure of serving one's country by repelling dangerous innovations, by maintaining domestic peace, by giving, if need be, all one's blood to save the shedding of one drop of that of the lowest of one's countrymen. He depicted all these attractive utopian visions with so much art and charm that Indiana submitted to be led on to the feeling that she must love and respect all that Raymond loved and respected. It was fairly proved that Ralph was an egotist. When he maintained a generous idea, they smiled. It was clear that at such times his heart and his mind were in contradiction. Was it not better to believe Raymond, who had such a big, warm, expansive heart? There were moments, however, when Raymond almost forgot his love, to think only of his antipathy. When he was with Madame Delmar, he could see nobody but Sir Ralph, who presumed, with his rough, cool common sense, to attack him, a man of superior talents, who had overthrown such doughty adversaries. He was humiliated to find himself engaged with so paltry an adversary, and thereupon would overwhelm him with the weight of his eloquence. He would bring into play all the resources of his talent, and Ralph, bewildered, slow in collecting his ideas, slower still in expressing them, would be made painfully conscious of his weakness. 
At such moments it seemed to Indiana that Raymond's thoughts were altogether diverted from her. She had spasms of anxiety and terror as she reflected that perhaps all those noble and high-sounding sentiments, so eloquently declaimed, were simply the pompous scaffolding of words, the ironical harangue of the lawyer listening to himself and practicing the comedy which was to take by surprise the good nature of the tribunal. She was especially fearful when, as her eyes met his, she fancied that she saw gleaming in them not the pleasure of having been understood by her, but the triumphant self-satisfaction of having made a fine argument. She was afraid at such times, and her thoughts turned to Ralph the egotist, to whom they had perhaps been unjust. But Ralph was not tactful enough to say anything to prolong this uncertainty, and Raymond was very skilful in removing it. Thus there was but one really perturbed existence, one really ruined happiness in that domestic circle, the existence and happiness of Sir Ralph Brown, a man born to misfortune, for whom life had displayed no brilliant aspects, no intense heart-filling joys, a victim of great but secret unhappiness, who complained to no one and whom no one pitied. A truly accursed destiny, in the poetic sense, without thrilling adventures, a commonplace, bourgeois, melancholy destiny, which no friendship had sweetened, no love charmed, which was endured in silence with the heroism which the love of life and the need of hoping give. A lonely mortal, who had had a father and a mother like everybody else, a brother, a wife, a son, a friend, and who had reaped no benefit, retained nothing of all those ties, a stranger in life who went his way melancholy and indifferent, having not even that exalted consciousness of his misfortune which enables one to find some fascination in sorrow. Despite his strength of character, he sometimes felt discouraged with virtue. He hated Raymond, and it was in his power to drive him from Logny with a word, but he did not say it, because he had one belief, a single one, which was stronger than Raymond's countless beliefs. It was neither the church, nor the monarchy, nor society, nor reputation, nor the law, which dictated his sacrifices and his courage. It was his conscience. He had lived so alone that he had not accustomed himself to rely upon others, but he had learned in his isolation to know himself. He had made a friend of his own heart. By dint of self-communion, of asking himself the cause of the unjust acts of others, he had assured himself that he had not earned them by any vice. He had ceased to be irritated by them, because he set little store by his own personality which he knew to be insipid and commonplace. He understood the indifference of which he was the object, and he had chosen his course with regard to it. But his heart told him that he was capable of feeling all that he did not inspire, and while he was disposed to forgive everything in others, he had decided to tolerate nothing in himself. This wholly inward life, these wholly private sensations, gave him all the outward appearance of a selfish man. Indeed, nothing resembles selfishness more closely than self-respect. However, as it often happens, that because we attempt to do too much good, we do much less than enough. It happened that Sir Ralph made a great mistake from over-scrupulousness, 
and caused Madame Delmar an irreparable injury from dread of burdening his own conscience with a cause of reproach. That mistake was his failure to enlighten her as to the real reasons of Noun's death. Had he done so, she would doubtless have reflected on the perils of her love for Raymond. But we shall see later why Monsieur Brown dared not inform his cousin, and what painful scruples led him to keep silence on so momentous a question. When he decided to break his silence, it was too late. Raymond had had time to establish his empire. An unforeseen event occurred to cloud the future prospects of the colonel and his wife, a business house in Belgium, upon which all the prosperity of the Delmar establishment depended, had suddenly failed, and the colonel, who had hardly recovered his health, started in hot haste for Antwerp. He was still so weak and ill that his wife wished to accompany him, but Monsieur Delmar, being threatened with complete ruin, and resolved to honor all his obligations, feared that his journey would then seem too much like a flight. So he determined to leave his wife at Lagny as a pledge of his return. He even declined the company of Sir Ralph, and begged him to remain and stand by Madame Delmar in case of any trouble on the part of anxious or over-eager creditors. At this painful crisis, Indiana was alarmed at nothing save the possibility of having to leave Lagny and be separated from Raymond. But he comforted her by convincing her that the colonel would surely go to Paris. Moreover, he gave her his word that he would follow her, on some pretext or another, wherever she might go, and the credulous creature deemed herself almost happy in a misfortune that enabled her to put Raymond's love to the test. As for him, a vague hope, a persistent, importunate thought, had absorbed his mind ever since he had heard of this event. He was to be alone with Indiana at last, the first time in six months. She had never seemed to attempt to avoid a tete-a-tete, -tete. and although he was in no haste to triumph over a love whose ingenuous chastity had for him the attraction of novelty, he was beginning to feel that his honor was involved in bringing it to some conclusion he honorably repelled any malicious insinuation concerning his relations with Madame Delmar. He declared very modestly that there was nothing more than a placid and pleasant friendship between them. But not for anything in the world would he have admitted even to his best friend that he had been passionately in love for six months and had as yet obtained no fruit of that love. He was somewhat disappointed in his anticipations when he saw that Sir Ralph seemed determined to replace Monsieur Delmar so far as surveillance was concerned, that he appeared at Lagny in the morning and did not return to Belle-Rive until night. Indeed, as their road was the same for some distance, Ralph, with an intolerable affectation of courtesy, insisted upon timing his departure by Raymond's. This constraint soon became intensely disagreeable to Monsieur de Ramier, and Madame Delmar fancied that she could detect in it not only a suspicion insulting to herself, but a purpose to assume despotic control over her conduct. Raymond dared not request a secret interview. Whenever he made the attempt, Madame Delmar had reminded him of certain conditions agreed upon between them. Meanwhile a week had passed since the colonel's departure. He might return very soon. The present opportunity must be turned to advantage. To allow Sir Ralph the victory would be a disgrace to Raymond. One morning he slipped this letter into Madame Delmar's hand. 
Indiana, do you not love me as I love you? My angel, I am unhappy, and you do not see it. I am sad, anxious concerning your future, not my own, for wherever you may be, there I shall live and die. But the thought of poverty alarms me on your account. Ill and frail as you are, my poor child, how will you endure privation? You have a rich and generous cousin. Your husband will perhaps accept at his hands what he will refuse at mine. Ralph will ameliorate your lot, and I shall be able to do nothing for you. Be sure, be sure, my dear love, that I have reason to be depressed and disappointed. You are heroic. You laugh at everything. You insist that I must not grieve. Ah, how I crave your gentle words, your sweet glances, to sustain my courage. But by a monstrous fatality, these days that I hope to pass freely at your feet have brought me nothing but a constraint that grows even more galling. Say a word, Indiana, so that we may be alone at least an hour, that I may weep upon your white hands and tell you all that I suffer, and that a word from you may console and comfort me. And then, Indiana, I have a childish caprice, a genuine lover's caprice. I would like to enter your room. Oh, don't be frightened, my gentle Creole. It is my bounden duty not only to respect you, but to fear you. That is the very reason why I would like to enter your room, to kneel in that place where you were so angry with me, and where, bold as I am, I dared not look at you. I would like to prostrate myself there, to pass a meditative, happy hour there. I would crave no other favor, Indiana, than that you should place your hand on my heart and cleanse it of its crime, pacify it if it beats too rapidly, and give it your confidence once more if you find me worthy of you at last. Yes, I would like to prove to you that now I am worthy, that I know you through and through, that I worship you with an adoration as pure and holy as ever maiden conceived for her Madonna. I would like to be sure that you no longer fear me, that you esteem me as much as I revere you. I would like to live an hour as angels live, with my head upon your heart. Tell me, Indiana, may I? One hour, the first, perhaps the last. It is time to forgive me, Indiana, to give me back your confidence so cruelly snatched from me, so dearly redeemed. Are you not satisfied with me? Have I not passed six months behind your chair, confining my desires to a glance at your snow-white neck through the curls of your black hair, as you leaned over your work, to a breath of the perfume that emanates from you, and which the air from the window at which you sit brings faintly to my nostrils? does not such submission deserve the reward of a kiss a sister's kiss if you will a kiss on the forehead i will remain true to our agreements i swear it i will ask for nothing but cruel one will you grant me nothing are you afraid of yourself madame delmare went to her room to read this letter she replied to it instantly and handed him the reply with a key to the park gate which he knew too well. I afraid of you, Raymond? Oh, no, not now. I know too well that you love me. I am too blissfully happy in the belief that you love me. Come, then, for I am not afraid of myself either. 
If I loved you less, perhaps, I should be less calm. But I love you with a love of which you yourself have no idea. Go away early so that Ralph may suspect nothing. Return at midnight. You are familiar with the park and the house. Here is the key of the small gate. Lock it after you. This ingenuous, generous confidence made Raymond blush. He had tried to inspire it with the purpose of abusing it. He had counted on the darkness, the opportunity, the danger. If Indiana had shown any fear, she was lost. But she was perfectly calm. She placed her trust in his good faith. He swore that he would give her no cause to repent. But the important part was to pass a night in her bedroom, in order not to be a fool in his own eyes, in order to defeat Ralph's prudence, and to be able to laugh at him in his sleeve. That was a personal gratification which he craved. End of chapter 15